I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. This week, we sit down with Jeremy Roll, a full-time passive investor in real estate syndications. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Jeremy, welcome to the road to family freedom. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, of course. We always love talking to you. So tell us the story about how you became a real estate investor. Sure. So it, it's actually, it goes back a little ways. I don't know how old people are listening to the podcast, but I've been investing in real estate for about 17 years. It's always been passively. And so that goes back to 2002. And what happened with me is that I was, um, I basically, after the dot-com crash in 2001, I was just sick and tired of the stock market for two reasons. One of which is a little more obvious is the volatility. I'm a really kind of low-risk guy. And to watch the market go up and down 30% a year was not for me. But the thing that wasn't as obvious and that bothered me more is actually the lack of predictability. So not knowing where my retirement account would be in a day, a year, 10 years, 20 years, because of the volatility of the stock market and the lack of predictability really bothered me. And it just didn't seem like a good retirement strategy for me because I'm kind of low risk. I prefer to have more predictability. So I started looking for different ways to invest, came across the general concept of cash flow for more predictability. And then I kind of came across real estate to be able to achieve that kind of lower risk cash flow, which of course, there's many different ways to invest in real estate, but I ended up focusing on more of the lower risk, more predictable cash flow. And that's kind of what I focused on since. So it was, it was actually quite, quite a while ago. Gotcha. You know, I often hear people talk about an unfair advantage, uh, you know, trying to exploit our unfair, unfair advantage. It's very difficult for the average person to have an unfair advantage in the stock market because you have people, you have these hedge funds that have massive groups of, of people that are analyzing the stock at, stock market on a daily basis. Um, and even they get it wrong a lot of the time. Um, so I, I totally get what you're saying, you know, sort of more predictability and less volatility. Yeah. And I actually have nothing in the stock market right now. I haven't since 2007. So I'm going to make this statement that I'm a complete amateur, but I believe a very high percentage of trades now are done through high frequency trading which if you're not familiar with that and you're investing in stocks, you may want to look up that term. It's also known as HFT, which is basically robots, right? Very smart computer programs with people who have actually special pipelines directly with fiber optic cables, I believe, into the stock market where actually they position themselves geographically right near the stock market. So they have a quicker trade and they do what's called front running, which is basically they will um, buy it. They'll actually see that you want to buy it as an individual, but they're so fast that they actually can buy it from somebody else and then sell it to you at a higher price in the middle, even though you think you're just putting a bid in and just buying it within a second or two. This happens in milliseconds. So when you talk about unfair advantage, it's not just a lack of predictability, the volatility. There's a lot more stuff that goes on in the stock market that, you know, is, is quite interesting. And I think there's like, I think it's either 40 or 60% of trades are done that way right now. It's yeah. a really high number. So it does, anyway. Does not, I, I am familiar with it. It doesn't surprise me at all. And it's one of the reasons that I, my stock investing basically just, you know, consists of Vanguard index 500 funds. You know, I just, I stick, I have a small amount of money that I stick in there. And I'll, I'm betting on the, the overall U.S. stock market, uh, but as far as you know, my active investing, it's it's almost always uh, real estate. So yeah, um, no, makes sense. So we're big believers in beginning with the end in mind, and and the power of that. So can you tell tell us what your destination is? Where is real estate uh, taking you? You know, that's a really interesting question. Um, what I would say is that I'm hoping it takes me on the same path but in a better and better way, meaning that I'm trying to grow a snowball of cash flow uh, and a passive, uh, you know, structure. And I've been trying to do that now for 17 years. It's a very long-term horizon. I'm a very long-term kind of stone steady kind of patient person. And I'm thinking that say in the next 10 to 15 years, my goal is to be at three X cost of living, which, you know, just to put into context for those of you listening, I live two blocks, literally two blocks south of Beverly Hills in Los Angeles. Um, and between, you know, my son, we're looking at putting him to private school next year. 
um, the cost of living where I am with kids and everything else that goes along with this stratospheric, I mean, it's really crazy. Um, and so to get a three X, you know, cost of living in this area takes a long time and is very challenging. And that's my hopeful goal, um, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years, but on a more simplistic level, it's really just about continuing to build my cash flow snowball, so to speak, and just kind of as that grows, I kind of get more and more comfort level that everything's going to be okay down the line for me. Gotcha. So let's backtrack a little bit and make sure that people have an understanding of the type of investor that you are. You are a completely passive investor. Can you sort of explain to people what that is? Sure. I've been investing passively since I started. Um, I started passively because I was actually working at Disney headquarters, California, uh, kind of middle-level marketing brand manager for DVD and VHS, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. And essentially, I was just too busy at work. It was crazy busy. I was working on like literally 600 product launches every year. And so I had to go passive because I didn't have time to be active. And so Passive to me, which I realize is kind of a different definition for everybody, means that I give up control in exchange for diversification. And what I mean by that is that I'm investing in a deal where I'm a very small piece because I'm pooled with many investors. They're typically called syndication or managed opportunities. And that's kind of a legal term. And so I invest passively in that I kind of do all my work up front. And then somebody else who is hopefully an experienced manager is managing the entire opportunity. You know, if toilet breaks, in a 200-unit apartment building, they've got a management team that's going to fix it. I, don't, I never get a call about anything. I literally get a quarterly report and hopefully a cash flow check. Hopefully, it's going to projections or better. And what I do is, again, if you remember, I said I trade control for diversification. So I lack control because I'm passive. And what I mean by that is that if there's ever a, a vote to sell or some type of other vote for some need, I am such a small percentage vote that it's kind of not very meaningful. I have no control. But what I get in exchange is that rather than take you know, let's say it costs $250,000 to buy a house or an investment property, I can maybe put $50,000 into five different apartment buildings with a lot more tenant diversification and just diversification across assets to begin with in exchange for giving up control. And so that's how I view being passive. Some people consider passive that they may own, let's say, a pool of homes, rental homes themselves, and they have full control over the homes, meaning they can buy and sell them, hire and fire property managers, finance them, refinance them at any time they own them. They own the title. I actually consider that active because if the toilet breaks and you have a repair, you're still going to get a call to authorize it. If the tenant has to be moved out and moved in, you might get a call to authorize a tenant going in or out. And so to me, that's not truly passive. My definition is that I literally have no control and therefore I'm passive. And I do that again in these managed opportunities. And most of what I actually invest in is commercial real estate. They're typically a bit larger opportunities. Gotcha. Okay. So you're giving up control in exchange for diversity. Um, you know, and often people talk about, well, you want to have a diversified portfolio in, in the stock market, which a lot of people know, you know, you're investing in different industries, you're investing in different, um, you may be investing in bonds, you may be investing in international markets. How does one go about diversifying uh, when they're a passive investor in real estate? Yeah, great question. So I like to think about my diversification in three different ways. So I like to try to be diversified across asset classes, geographies, and operators. Okay. So asset classes, meaning I might be invested in some apartment buildings, some self-storage units, some mobile home parks, some retail strip centers, some office buildings, some industrial buildings, et cetera. Okay. That's just on the commercial real estate side. I actually have investments on the single family side and even some non-real estate, but just giving some examples. I'm actually invested in every single one of those asset classes I just mentioned right now. And uh, from a geography perspective, I like to be diversified across geographies, both because local economies can change um, over time. But more importantly, there's a lot of different weather concerns. In other words, you know, if you're in a hurricane-prone area, you may want to invest in a certain asset class, but not others. Um, if you're in California and L.A., if you had all your investments in L.A. and there's a really bad earthquake, you could be kind of overexposed. Um, and I can go on and on about, like, harsh winters, you know, winter weather. And so, so for me, you got to be um, diversified across geographies. And operators, that to me is the most fundamental one, which is, you know, anyone who invested with Madoff, and I feel very bad for them. If they had all their money with them and they lost all their money, that could have been prevented by them being diversified across operators, presumably, right? Mm-hmm. So they could have had some money with Madoff and someone. And so I'm not saying that it would, would have not caused a major problem for that person, but they wouldn't have lost everything. And so I kind of use the same approach with operators because in, in any opportunity, um, there's always what I call these 1% risk. So you have a fraud risk, a mismanagement risk. You have a foreclosure risk that can happen as of many different reasons. 
and many other risks that are, are, are very hard to predict. And so you kind of have to be comfortable in knowing that there are a lot of 1% risks that you're getting involved with and you do invest in real estate. Um, and the way that I like to mitigate them is to diversify those across operators as well. Um, so again, if there's a fraudulent operator, like I've invested with one that's, that I've got three or four investments with, that's not going to be fun. But like I'm currently in over 70 different LLCs and I've been in over 100 over time. So it's also not going to completely take me down like it may have taken down some people with Madoff. So I am actually kind of, I call myself hyper diversified, you know, being in over 70 things because I do it full time. I'm able to find those, but that's not over 70 is probably unrealistic for someone who's doing it on the side or working full time and trying to find these. So it's those, I think diversification again is being diversified across asset classes, geographies and operators. Gotcha. So when you made the decision to start investing passively, how did you go about getting yourself educated on this strategy? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, back when I started in 2002, crowdfunding didn't exist online. And so accessing opportunities was very challenging. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the space, the SEC um, mandates that most of these opportunities be private opportunities, meaning they're not, there's not allowed to use public solicitation and they're not used public marketing. There's actually been some new structures that have come into place that allow for that in the last five years or so based on some new laws. But I would say a majority of the opportunities still work that way. And so long story short is that back in 2002, I originally learned on how all these work and educated myself on what I call opportunity exposure. That just means reviewing as many opportunities as possible. So if I wanted to learn about apartments that were one to 200 units or 300 units, I would go out there and try and find as many apartment opportunities as I could, read, read them all, compare them, see the similarities, differences, and then eventually learn through years of that, and, and as well as going to educational events and some local networking events and learning from others. So most of what I did was opportunity exposure, and I kind of hold true to that still working today because I'm not aware of any specific book that explains on how a past investor can go, you know, evaluate a, an apartment opportunity really well. Most of the books are, are actually written for the operators in terms of how they go out, go about acquiring a property, evaluating it, and then finding investors. So the difference between today and when I started is that I had to go to physical in-person networking events to find all these opportunities. Right now, anyone who are, anyone who's an accredited investor, which we can get a definition of that, can actually log on to many different web, uh, crowdfunding sites like Realty Mogul, Realty Shares, um, CrowdStreet, and a lot of other large ones. And they can go in, in an hour in their pajamas, download 10 or 20 or 30 apartment opportunities, print them, and have access to them immediately. I mean, the efficiency of that versus what I have to do, literally go find people in person at networking events and ask them if they had opportunities, that is just a huge shift. So I'm not advocating that crowdfunding sites are necessarily the best place to invest or not invest. I think it depends on your circumstance, but... My point is that it's a, those are great tools for learning, even if you're not intending on using a crowdfunding site for uh, your actual investment. So that's definitely the number one way that I learned. And it's, it's actually the, the route that I recommend in terms of it being the most efficient. Gotcha. So log into the crowd streets, the crowdfunding sites, download the opportunities, read them, get a feel for how each, each business plan is structured, what they're planning to do, how they plan to make money uh, and things like that. Correct. Yes. And in fact, I would go down to the level, like you can actually see, you know, one opportunity said they're going to have rent growth at 3% per year. Another one says 4% per year. And the other one says 2.5% per year. Well, why? Is it because one operator is being uh, conservative, the other one's being aggressive? Is it justified or not? And you can start to learn all this by actually comparing like all the specific details. Um, I also want to point out that if you are going to analyze some of the opportunities on the crowdfunding sites, just know that some of the crowdfunding sites will pull investors together into an LLC, manage the opportunity, um, and kind of stay on top of the manager, but they charge fees for that. And so there's a difference in returns, in projected returns, if you're going to invest through crowdfunding, some of the crowdfunding sites versus going directly and investing with the operator. So don't, I would actually pay less attention to the returns necessarily and more attention to all the assumptions and everything else because those will hold constant. Um, and there was, in other words, if you're investing directly with the operator or to the crowdfunding site, but just know that you may find the exact same deal from a crowdfunding site and from the same operator. The returns will be a little bit lower, presumably, through the crowdfunding site because it takes these. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And crowdfunding sites actually be extremely helpful. But I just want to make sure people know to pay attention to that and um, to not necessarily worry about the returns 
or at least make sure they adjust them for the fact that the crowdfunding sites may take some fees. Gotcha. And so you mentioned that, that in order to access these crowdfunding sites that you need to be an accredited investor. Can you explain what an accredited investor is? Sure. And that's, that's not 100% true for all the crowdfunding sites. There are non-accredited investors that can also access some of the crowdfunding sites like Realty Mogul and Realty Shares who have specific funds that were designed and that allow non-accredited investors, but they cannot access the actual individual opportunities that they're a non-accredited investor, only those specific funds. So an accredited investor, and by the way, this is just, um, there's no, you don't have to be a member of anything to be a accredited investor. It sounds like it, but you know, it's just an SEC definition. So my understanding of it, and I should have really started this whole thing by saying, you know, I'm not an attorney, an accountant, or an investment advisor, or a financial advisor. So anything I'm sharing today, just my perspective as an investor, you're, but- You're off the yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's important people know. So, um, so my understanding of a credit, uh, being an accredited investor is that either you have to have made it, like, you know, if you're, if you're single, you have to have made at least 200000 for the last two years and expect to make 200000 minimum this year, or you have to have a net worth of at least a million dollars, excluding the value of your primary residence is just net worth. Or if you're married and file your taxes joint, then um, you have to have made joint 300000 or more for the last two years and expect to make 300000 or more this year. Or you have to have a combined net worth of a million dollars or more, excluding the value of your primary residence. And so being in one of those two buckets, whether you're single or joint, qualifies you as being accredited just because you just under the SEC definition. Gotcha. And that's what you typically for many of these opportunities, you need to be verified as an accredited investor, correct? Well, for most of the crowd, I think for all the crowdfunding sites to look at individual opportunities right now. I'm quite sure that you need to be accredited to access those. For the crowdfunding sites that have the, the larger funds that are open to non-accredited investors are structured a different way, you can access those, but you're not going to get access to like really reviewing a lot of opportunities, et cetera, unless you're an accredited investor. Gotcha. All right. So that sort of leads us into the idea of how much money uh, someone would need to get started with passive investing. Um, if someone was starting off, maybe let's say they're not, let's go with two different scenarios. One for someone who's an accredited investor and one for someone who's maybe a non-accredited investor. How would they get started passively investing in real estate? Yes. For a non-accredited investor, because it's a little easier. Well, actually, that's not true. It's similar. So there's two ways that I kind of see as the passive lease resistance. One way is they can actually log on to Realty Mogul or Realty Share or maybe a couple others online who have funds, the diversified funds that own interest across a lot of properties, and they're designed to take non-accredited investors. Their minimum investments are very low. I think they're 5000 or maybe even lower. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but that is a very quick way for a non-accredited investor to get involved at a very small amount, okay? Um, and, of course, you've got to read up on those funds, see how they work, make sure you're comfortable with all the legal terms and everything else, but they're there, and they can be researched very easily online. The other option for non-accredited investors is that some of the private opportunities I mentioned you can find networking in person actually allow for non-accredited investors. So um, the other option is to go out there and network as much as possible to some of your local real estate events, maybe some of your uh, real estate conferences, and you will start to find, if you ask around, you'll start to find opportunities and build a network. Uh, by the way, another option is for non-accredited, I don't think it's quite as easy to find this online, but biggerpockets.com, which I'm not at all affiliated with, but it's a very large resource for real estate investors. I think it's the lar largest online resource for real estate investors in the U.S. as far as forums and blog posts. So you can actually go up there and maybe even ask the question, I'm not a credit investor. I'm starting new. Where do you think I can find opportunities and see what people say? It's probably going to get some good answers there. Those are some suggestions for non-accredited. For accredited, definitely you can find some opportunities across all the crowdfunding sites and like Realty Mogul, Realty Shares and some others. And then um, you can also go to these networking events and try to find those opportunities. Another option is that in some of the newer opportunities that are allowed to publicly market to solicit accredited investors, you may find some opportunities now advertised online, just come across them randomly, or you may find them, for example, on bigger pockets where they actually talk about their opportunity. They're allowed to do that when it's allowed to be publicly marketed, and that's only for accredited investors. That's the requirement in exchange for them to allow the public market. There's a few other requirements, but just to simplify, um, in those cases, just know, though, that if you're going to invest in that type of structure, which is called a 506 like Charlie versus the more private structure. And I'm just generalizing. Most of them are 506B like boy. 
If I was to see like Charlie that takes accredited investors only and allows for public uh, solicitation or public marketing of accredited investors, they require that you actually prove that you're an accredited investor by getting verified by a third party accreditation company. They'll actually require you to submit either tax returns to prove your income or financial statements or some broker statements or whatnot to prove your net worth. So um, just know that if you're going to go into anything that's publicly marketed, probably they're going to have that requirement at the moment. And therefore, it's just an extra hoop to go through. Whereas if you're investing in a private opportunity, like a 506C, like boy, if you're accredited, often you're attesting and signing that you're accredited and you're checking off a box that you qualify under, but you're not having to go through other hoops of proving that you're accredited. And so just a little side tip. I'm sorry if it sounds confusing, but it's probably good to know. No, no. And, you know, we're not expecting people to become experts in SEC regulations right here on this podcast. So just understand that the the basic difference is accredited versus non-accredited, advertised opportunity versus not, you know, a completely private opportunity. Um, Those are typically, that's typically what you're going to face, correct? Yes, yes. And of course, I, I, I'm a very big proponent of networking. I mean, networking has changed my life. It's gotten me access to all these opportunities. I've built a very large network over the last 17 years. I'm very happy, very lucky to have now. And it is, if I think about every opportunity I've invested in, it's literally through some type of networking effect. And I don't even think I'm exaggerating because I have to find everything through my network and it's all privately um, marketed. So um, networking has just changed my life and cash flow has changed my life. And so if you put a lot of effort into your networking, you will begin to find good opportunities. And one thing that's interesting about what you started this podcast with about having that unfair advantage is I feel like you can get unfair advantage is probably not the best way to describe it, but you can certainly find, you know, start to find what I call unique deals or have access to more opportunities, which will eventually result in more unique deals by having a bigger and bigger network, right? Because I find some unique deals. Sometimes people come to me with them just because of my network where you know, another person who doesn't network as much won't get them because they're all privately marketed. So if you want to give yourself a bit of an advantage as a passive investor, network as much as possible. Gotcha. Typically now, you know, you have, you talk about how your goal is to, is to keep building your cash flow snowball. So do you have any sort of thought processes that you go through on how that you plan to reinvest the returns that you're earning. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess, um, to be honest, it's not very scientific and it's one of the inefficiencies of investing in these types of opportunities versus uh, stock market, for example. With stock market, let's say you've got a dividend stock that's paying you dividends. In many cases, you can actually have like an auto reinvest, for example, and then you're perfectly compounding that money, right? The challenge with real estate is that once you exit an opportunity as a passive investor, you get this lump sum cash back and then the question is where do you put it again? And that's a particularly good question right now as we're having this call because it's 2018 and I find it extremely challenging to find anything that makes sense because asset prices are very, very high. And so I've been very happy to be involved in many different sales this year. Uh, I think I'm currently in about 12 to 15 right now, but I've got nowhere to put the money when I get the money back. And so my cash, my, my actual snowball is getting a little smaller this year because I'm not reinvesting as quickly as I'd like. So gotcha. for me, it's as simple as having enough of a network to have the pipeline of opportunities so that what the, the money does come up that you're able to reinvest it. The other thing I would say is that during a different part of the cycle, when opportunities are a lot more plentiful, that actually makes sense to me. Um, there is some time that goes into, you know, if I'm expecting a property to sell, say, next month, and I just find two new opportunities today, sometimes I don't have enough capital to match up everything I want to invest in, and you've got to make a decision. Sometimes I'll carve it into two, just for more diversification. Um, and then other times, you know, it might be a few months before I can redeploy the money because I'm, you know, the supply of opportunities isn't there. So the, one of the challenges of optimizing this whole strategy is it's not really possible because you don't know exactly when new opportunity is coming up. I mean, I can get off of, of, the, uh, of this podcast with you and then now we're getting a new opportunity or I can not get one for the next month. So the, the best I can say is that I try to keep some cash available at all times so that I, so I don't have to miss um, opportunities that I definitely want to get into. But I will say that early on in my investing, that was tough because I didn't had very limited capital. And so there were many times where I wish I had capital to invest in opportunity just wasn't there. And now as the snowball has grown bigger, I've just become a little more reserved about having cash available. I'd rather have more cash than less to be able to deploy in case something good comes along. Gotcha. And you don't typically use any sort of leverage to do this. It's just you're, because the leverage is already on the, on the asset, correct? That is correct. Uh, I like to get into assets that maybe have 60, 65 to 70% loan to value leverage in a typical deal that I invest in. 
So I know there's these different things you can do where, you know, if you've got X amount of dollars in a bank account, you can then take a credit line against it. And then your credit line is at a very low interest rate. And then you can kind of take the spread. And I think that's what you're thinking of. But yeah, that's not my personality. So it, it, may, it may be a great thing to do. And it may be a good fit for a lot of people listening. But it's just, you know, there's a thousand ways to invest. And it's just not a fit for my personality. So I don't do that. Gotcha. Definitely. It, it definitely raises the risk quite a bit. So oh. yeah, yeah. But there, but the thing is, the argument can be made that if you do it really well, you'll be way ahead of me in 20, 30 years, right? Or if you take more risk than me, you'll be way ahead of me in 20, 30 years. But I actually agree with, uh, for me, it's just a question of like, I'm a very low risk guy. So I'd rather just sleep better at night um, and end up with a smaller snowball at the end versus yep. that, you know, uh, there are plenty of people listening who would probably take the opposite approach. Gotcha. No, it's good to understand wh- what your risk tolerance is. So um, yep. you are a full-time passive investor. How much time would you say that you spend on your real estate in- endeavors uh, each week? Good question. I've been full-time for about 11 and a half years at this point that we're recording this. Uh, I've been investing in 17 years or more than 17 years now, but it's been full-time 11 and a half years. And I definitely work very hard because I am constantly looking at opportunities, speaking to new people to build up my network further to get access to more deals. I actually have a private investor group and I spend some time dealing with that as well, but that's kind of a minority piece. And most of what I do is focused on my own investing, but I have that group as well. And so I will say this, I haven't ever run the numbers on how many hours I work a week, but I work really, really hard. Part of the reason is because I've purposely not grown to be a business. I've tried to just stay to be an individual investor. And so, you know, I work from home office. I don't have any overhead. And so I've got to do everything. You know, I work day and night and I basically spend as much time as possible with my kids on the weekend and my wife. Um, and I take some family time off, you know, dinner and then a little after that. I'm very fortunate because I work from home. So I do see my kids when they get home, et cetera. But I don't really, I'm not, I don't like at four o'clock when, you know, if they're home, I don't go and play soccer with them for half an hour in the backyard. I'm focused on work till six. So I, I am, um, I try to be ultra efficient, but I do work very hard. I, I would say I probably work harder now than I did in the corporate world, but it's, uh, it's much more fun. I love it. And um, I wouldn't trade it for sure. Gotcha. So it's basically, I mean, it's, it's a full-time, it's a full-time commitment or more, but obviously much more rewarding and, and more flexible. It, exactly. And, you know, with my personality and that I really like to optimize things, you know, being in over 70 LLCs that's a lot of work to get to and it's a lot of work to actually continue on and build a snowball from there. So not everybody will necessarily have that approach. And, you know, I suppose you could say, I think for some people who might be a little older, retired, have a bigger snowball, for example, they could definitely do this much more part-time than I do. But I've got that anxiety and pressure that I put on myself to get that snowball where I want to get to. And I know it's going to take years to get there still. So I really treat it as a full-time, full focus. Mm -hmm. Have you ever considered moving somewhere less expensive, Jeremy, and maybe making that snow, making the snowball a little smaller? Yeah, that's a great question. I it's not it's not a week that goes by that I point out to my wife how much it costs to live here. So um, my wife's uh, family is um, a few different pieces of them are actually very close to us here. So I actually would have chosen to have left a long time ago and reduced overhead, but she wants to be really close to family with the kids growing up and everything else, which I understand. So. Uh, it's a good suggestion, but I am stuck. You know, it's ironically, this morning I read an article about, and I hope I have this right, half of the world's population lives on $5.50 US a day, okay, or less, right? So yeah. I point, <laughs> I take these articles and send them to my wife, just a little subliminal messages, you know, because that's an unbelievable statistic to me. And of course, that's not really feasible probably in the US, I don't think. Um, but unless you're on welfare and really like dependent on the welfare. But, um, but my point is like, I pay attention to this stuff. And if I, if I had a choice not to be living where I am today, I definitely would move at the same time. It is sunny here every day. And I, I have that, you know, on the weekends, I'm always outside with my kids, even at night. And so um, there's trade-offs to everything, but yeah, it's a good suggestion, but I, I definitely wouldn't be living where I am if I had a choice. And the funny thing is that my line about being a passive full-time passive cash flow investor is that the key to being a full-time passive cash flow investor is low overhead, right? Because you're trying to cover your overhead with your cash flow, just like you're saying. So I think you made a very good suggestion that makes a lot of sense if you're trying to do this. Yeah. No, I, I, I do the same thing to my wife. I send her uh, articles about, you know, uh, Italian towns that are offering to pay you to move there and uh, things like that occasionally, you know, and, and we don't live in a uh, we live in Las Vegas, which is not the lowest uh, cost living place in the world, but it's certainly not the highest. And uh, you definitely can 
leverage your your snowball if you move to somewhere that's got a lower cost of living. But anyway, so yeah, I one hundred percent agree. But but roots are important, and I also have. I mean, part of the reason I am where I am is because of family. So it sounds like that's very much your situation as well. So yep. Okay, so. I know you, um, I've interacted with you before and I'm always sort of amazed at how good you are at following up and managing your calendar. So I'm curious of if there are any sort of systems that you've developed that help you automate uh, your business. Yeah, so good question. I am a little bit obsessed about kind of being on top of follow-up. And so it's interesting. The first thing I'll say is that one of the things that really helps me to manage it is that I use, and this may not be the best fit for everybody because it's kind of old school, but I use Microsoft Outlook desktop that's connected to a Microsoft Exchange server. And what that allows me to do, which I think Google is now actually starting to actually offer directly, and there may have been some plugins for Gmail before this, but I can time delay an email. And so I'm very strategic because I came from marketing background about how I do that. So for example, let's say that I emailed you, okay, and we were supposed to schedule a call. And the first thing I'll do is as soon as I send that email out, I'll actually manually go and put a follow-up note in my calendar for six business days later that I need to follow up with you again if I haven't heard from you. So that's kind of step one that takes work because I do for every single email. And then what happens is that when I see that coming up, I'll time delay an email out to you for your time zone to hit you at 9 a.m. exactly. Um, So I think you're on Pacific, you get it at 9 a.m. Pacific. Now what I do when I send out that follow-up email is that I will actually, I can actually duplicate the email with this little control F. And so I duplicate two or three more emails and change the date of the next send for like six more business days, three different times. So now I've actually got four follow-ups with you, six days spread out. And that six days is just something I've chosen, business days, that I think is reasonable if you haven't heard from somebody. And then if I don't hear from you after three or four follow-ups, depending on how urgent or how important it is, sometimes I'll just drop it depending on who it is. And sometimes I'll actually then put a text or a call in. And sometimes it'll be before then. But the point is that I kind of, pre-think all of this. And uh, most important step that I take, though, is putting a follow-up note in my calendar for when I have to follow up with you next. So I think a lot of people may not do, and it's a lot of work. But once you get used to doing it, you just can't go back because then you're just, that allows you to be on top of it always. So definitely a lot of work involved, um, but it's very rare that something falls through the cracks with me, but it's obviously not impossible. No, but it's a great, it's a great thing. And I've been on the receiving end of it and it's always, um, it's very powerful because people think, you know, people forget, uh, they get, people get busy and they sort of move on and, and, um, you know, it's always a good reminder. And uh, they often talk about one of the powers of, Uh, advertising. And in a way, what you're doing is advertising. Um, You're just, you're trying to be top of mind for people. Yeah. This this is another really powerful word though, that I think that is, I'm really, I think is very important that comes with this is persistence. So, you know, I've actually seen scenarios where somebody will send somebody one email down here back and they're like, okay, I haven't heard back from them. You know, I follow up with them to see if they heard back from the person I introduced them to a week ago. And it's a very important contact. And I literally have to say, you know, you may want to follow up with them. They're just not great with email, right? And, but the reason why I try to be really on top of it is because persistence has paid off for me in so many times in life, in so many ways. And persistence requires more work. Let's not joke about it. But that persistence can make a huge difference in life across many different things. And so really, my follow-ups are really about my persistence and also about knowing that it's human nature that when I send an email to somebody, I probably get a response the first time, maybe a third to a half of the time. And I have to follow up one half, two thirds of the time. So if you're not prepared and organized to follow up with somebody, you're going to miss on one, one half to two thirds of communi- like possible networking communication because if you just send one email and forget it, that's it. So that persistence can make a huge difference in the long run between your success and failure across many things, just having that persistence alone. Um, I'm just a huge fan of persistence, even though it takes a lot of work. Yeah. Well, and real estate is such a people business that, you know, somebody may, may lament, well, I don't want to have to, you know, bug people multiple times. Well, then you're probably in the wrong business because it's a people business and people are, you know, people need those kinds of follow-ups. Uh, also, there's a marketing theory that talks about how the average marketing message takes something like 10, 10 contacts before it actually sinks in. And I've heard that used also when people talk about marketing for, uh, for deals with real estate is that sometimes it takes, you know, it's, it's not the first contact that gets you. It's not the second or the third or the fourth. Sometimes it's the sixth contact that finally gets the person to go, okay, well, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to sell now. 
Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, at some point I do give up. So if someone has a reply by the fourth or fifth follow-up, then I just drop it. Because yeah. what that tells me is that I may have to chase the person each time thereafter, and it's just not – it's just a challenge from a time perspective. But if it's an important person, I'll just keep going. I'll, I'll yeah. just keep going, and I'll maybe text or call, um, you know, to eventually get that to happen. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the kind of discipline slash persistence slash organization to – to get to, to like that extremity. And I, I realize it's an extreme approach that I take, but it, it really is hugely helpful. Yeah. Uh, have you ever hired any employees or virtual assistants to help you out? No. Um, I, I'd say one of my weak uh, links for sure is that I probably would benefit from virtual assistant across many different things, uh, possibly even a part-time employee. And I've come close to, to hiring either of those, but I've not done that yet. I know many people who have virtual assistants and have, you know, once they figure out the right one to work with, they have a ton of success with them. So it's funny because I don't use one, but I, from what I could tell, I strongly recommend one. Gotcha. So obviously, you know, we talked about invest your, the way you diversify. And one of the ways you do that is uh, with geography. Um, so obviously you invest long distance. What I'm just curious, what's the furthest away an asset is from uh, where you live? Great question. Question. So um, I do actually uh, invest across many different geographies. Actually, I'll invest anywhere in the U.S. that it makes sense. That's what I tell people. What I mean by that is, you know, typically it has to make sense from the economy perspective, possibly weather, depending on the asset class, et cetera. But uh, I live in California. I actually mostly do not invest in California, almost none, no investments in California because I invest for cash flow. And most people invest for appreciation here because there's little, very little cash flow because of very high asset prices. So I actually will consider anywhere in the U.S., including Hawaii and Alaska. I have not invested in those two states, but I would, I would consider them for sure. I've come close in Hawaii a couple of times. Um, I will also invest in Canada. I'm originally from Montreal. I spent about half of my life there, half of my life in the U.S. And um, I, I, will, I actually have many investments in Canada still today, and that's actually where I first started investing uh, in terms of I was living there, but I started investing there. Um, and so the reason why I limit it to those two countries is because what I've learned over the years is that I've seen interesting deals in Belize and many different places. But what I kind of concluded is that unless I have a network built up in a specific country, both to understand the laws of what I'm getting into and more importantly, in case the deal goes bad and I need help for some things to be taken over and I don't have a network locally there, I just pass. If I don't have a network in that country, I'm just going to pass. And so I have a network in, in uh, Canada for sure. Certainly I have a network in the U.S. And that's what I limit myself to. Also note that there's obviously exchange risk. I've definitely been on the kind of good and bad end of currency exchange in Canada as the exchange rates fluctuated over 17 years. So there's also that risk. I should note that I'm actually, I think I've actually invested either directly or indirectly at about 43 states in the U.S. at this point. It's a little bit deceiving because I invest in some funds that have properties like, you know, may have 80 or 100 properties spread out across 20 states. So it's not like I've actually invested in 43 states and in individual opportunities, but I've definitely spanned the vast majority of the states uh, thus far. Gotcha. Do you ever have any sort of need or want to visit any of the opportunities that you're investing in? Yeah, great question. So I know a lot of people who are listening may be working full-time, for example, and be hard for them to travel um, to see properties. But the answer is, it depends. I, I've actually walked many properties I've invested in, but not every single one. So I normally almost require, if I've never invested with somebody before, to actually walk a property with them and actually get them to tour me in a given area to, to, to make me understand why they like the area, what they saw about it, and why they're investing in it. Um, and the other thing, too, is that I, I don't think I've ever invested with somebody. I mean, I think ever is probably a strong word, but I certainly don't try not to invest with somebody unless I've actually met them in person for a final gut check. No matter how many calls I've had with them and what background checks I've done with them, I always like having a final gut check of in-person meeting. And that is actually usually best spent at the property, walking the property. That being said, um, I've invested, for example, with one operator for more than 20 times who's based in Canada. And of those, I've probably walked um, probably 15 of those 20, maybe 12, 15 of the 20, but I haven't walked maybe five to eight of those 20. And some asset classes are easier to analyze and understand from a distance than others. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're investing in a retail strip center on a pretty busy street with, you know, 50, 70,000 uh, traffic counts per day, and you can tell you're kind of near the corner of Maine and Maine, there's some very large retailers near McDonald's, Walmart, others. Um, and you use Google Maps, you can actually get a really good sense for exactly what you're investing and exactly where it's located, exactly how um, the property is accessible. 
And you're not going to get as much information without watching it. You won't see the condition of the parking lot, the condition of the retailers themselves, how it appears compared to competitors, how easy is it really to access versus what it looks like on, on the map. Um, but there are some asset classes that are easier to analyze than others that I get more comfortable with doing from a distance, but it's only going to be with people I've already invested with multiple times. So I have a very strong preference for watching properties in person for a whole number of reasons, not the least of which is that you can learn a ton just yourself and having an operator walk you through a property, just learning in terms of hearing their perspective on why they liked it, on things you may not have thought of. And you can also learn a ton about the people you're about to make a bet on by walking a property and having them tour the area with you. Because in the end of the day, when you're investing passively, the most important thing is who you're making a bet on. It's not the actual property itself. That's number two, in my opinion. Number one is who you're making a bet on. And you can learn a lot by having them walk you through a property. Yeah, I've often heard people say that, uh, that, and obviously the deal is important, but the operator, a good operator can make a, a good deal bad. How best to say this? Maybe you can say it for me. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the example that probably makes sense to everybody. So I like to tell people, you know, I live right near Beverly Hills and, you know, you can buy the best property on, on Rodeo Drive in like the best location, 100% occupied, great tenants right today and invest in that deal. But if the operator runs the building to the ground, isn't cooperative with the tenant, loses the tenant, the building gets foreclosed, we hand a key back to the bank, keys back to the bank, and we've got nothing. And so it didn't matter that it was the best property in the best location in this area. It's the way that the operator managed the deal was actually what mattered. And so that's how important it is to have the right operator. Gotcha. And would you say um, that you're more comfortable investing in an asset that you haven't seen with a operator that you've already met and had a, uh, a previous relationship with? Yeah, typically, you know, it depends on how long I've known them for and how obvious the asset class is, but it's just, it's extremely rare that I won't walk a property with an operator before I invest in them the first time. And I always strongly prefer to walk a property in general. Um, and so I say I probably walk, um, well, I don't like giving incorrect information. I don't know statistically, but I, I hazard a guess that I've walked the majority of the properties I've actually invested in. And in the case of larger funds, what I do is that you, I don't go and walk 80 properties, right? Um, what I'll do is I'll walk several properties, sometimes in a single area, and sometimes I'll maybe go through a couple of states that are near each other and walk a couple here, a couple there just to get a feel. Gotcha. So what do you think is uh, the most critical skill for someone who's interested in, in investing passively to develop in themselves? Um, I would say that one thing that's really important is assessing who you're making a bet on. And what I mean by that is you eventually learn how to read between the lines of reading an opportunity, read between the lines when you're actually asking questions to an operator. You're like, pretend that you're a you know, FBI investigator and you're trying to read between the lines and understand whether someone is really good to invest or whether someone is not good to invest with. And it may have nothing to do with the actual returns projected or how the opportunity was presented or even how some of the, the actual answers to some of the questions. And what I mean by that is that um, let's say that um, let's say you've got two apartment deals next to each other, one operator, and they're both next door to each other. And you're looking at the opportunities and they're, they're both the exact same 100 units, okay, built in the same year, renting for the same amount. One operator may say, okay, we're projecting this is going to be 2% vacant for the next 10 years because the market is extremely tight and the current vacancy rate is 1%, okay? Another operator may say, we're currently 2% vacant, but we're going to assume that it's going to be 8% vacant or 10% vacant each year going forward just to be conservative because the market may change and it just, you know, we want to be conservative. That's how we want to project. So you've got one operator who is trying to under-promise and potentially over-deliver for investors to to build long-term relationships with people and reinvesting with them many times. And then you have another operator who is being very aggressive and arguably maybe trying to make the numbers look as good as possible to have the returns look strong, to attract investors with bigger numbers. And they don't necessarily care as much about the long-term investment. They care about getting your investment dollars today. And they'll go on to the next investor if they have to next year, right? And so clearly I am always looking for the conservative operator who's looking to under-promise and over-deliver versus over-promise and under-deliver. And some of the way you find that out is trying to determine if they've used conservative assumptions. I may ask the question to an operator, why did you assume an 8% vacancy rate if it's a 2% vacancy rate today? If the answer is, well, we like to be really conservative, that tells me one thing, right? Whereas I can actually ask the operator, the market uh, vacancy rate right now is 
5%, but you're assuming it's going to be 3% going forward. And they say, yeah, it's a really strong market. Denver has been really hot, for example. We're getting a whole plus influx of people, and we just expect it to be really strong for the next five or 10 years. To me, that's just someone who's not conservative. And really, it didn't even matter. The numbers didn't matter. It was the answer they gave us to why they did it that mattered. So that's what I mean by reading between the lines. You can get some of this information and reading between the lines just in reading the overview without even having to ask any questions. And then you can get some of this information by asking the questions. And you can ask certain questions just so you can hear how they're answering as opposed to what the actual numbers are. So that skill has really served me really well over time. It takes a while to develop, but it, it really makes a big difference. Another thing I strongly recommend is to always do background checks on operators. I find that the majority, unfortunately, of, of past investors that I've ever asked don't do background checks. And they've definitely saved me multiple times from what seem to be very questionable people. And I always recommend background checks. I run one on every single managing member of every LLC that I, where the manager LLC that I'm investing in uh, before I make that investment. That's very important. And another skill that I recommend is certainly to understand the asset class you're investing in before you invest in it. And what I mean by that is if you say to yourself, I like the idea of apartments, I can relate to them, I know they're high in demand, the cost of living is very expensive in the U.S., and the apartments are going to be in demand for a long time. I actually agree with all that, right? The challenge is that if you just started out yesterday and you don't know what to look for in an apartment opportunity, in other words, you don't know what the average rent assumption should be, what the average inflation assumption for expenses should be, what the expense ratio should be, are they buying it at the right price, are they assuming they're going to sell it at a conservative price? Um, I can go on and on, but there are certain key things you have to look for. And until you understand exactly what to look for, you don't really understand what you're investing in, right? You don't even know if you're paying a good price or a bad price, you know, not what the operator is telling you, what the actual objective facts are. So um, until you get to the point where you can probably properly analyze an opportunity and really scrub through it yourself, and you actually get that 100% confidence that I know it, understand it well enough that I know exactly what I'm investing in. You should take the time to learn, but not yet invest. And I think that's very important. And actually, in 2018 right now, I like to tell people that it's a great time to learn. Probably one of the best times to learn because as you're learning, you're not really missing out on much because most opportunities are so, most properties are so expensive today that, you know, if I said to you, 2007, this is a great time to learn, you'd be like, oh, I get it. You know, I don't necessarily need to invest today, but by the time there's a downturn in a couple of years, I'll actually be really well educated. That's kind of how I feel like where we stand today, you know, similarly. So, um, it's a really great time to learn right now, but definitely make sure you understand what you're getting involved with before you put your money into it. Gotcha. Um, if you could hit a magic reset button that allowed you to go back in time when you first started your investing journey, uh, is there anything you would do differently? Well, first thing for sure, I would just start earlier. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I, I, I got into this type of investing because of the lack of predictability of the stock market. So now I kind of went into more predictable cash flow. But the irony is that theoretically, if I do a really good job investing, I might get better returns in the stock market by increasing an amount based on how these deals typically work. So if I would have started earlier, I would have had more predictability earlier, but potentially a bigger snowball by now. So earlier and younger is typically better. That's the number one thing I would definitely do immediately. Yeah. That's often the answer that I've gotten. <laughs> Most people just say, wish, yeah. I'd started early, wish I'd started earlier and gone bigger. You know? Yeah. Um, so I want you to imagine you're standing in a room full of aspiring investors, uh, more like people who have a full-time job and families, um, and maybe they have, they're looking for a way to get started. Um, they're battling their way through you know, fears and doubts and um, maybe a lack of time or money, what have you. Are, what are two or three strategies you could recommend they focus on to maybe best ensure success? Number one way for sure is take your time to get educated, whether it's at local networking, real estate meetings, um, whether it's uh, reading, you know, opportunities, as many opportunities as you can. I think the more you get educated, the more comfortable you're going to get actually jumping in because you're going to feel more confident you actually know what you're investing in. So that's kind of like definitely number one. Number two is um, the more you network, the more doors are going to open, the more you're going to learn. And so one of the important things to do at these real estate networking meetings is to talk to other investors. Ask them which courses are good and which courses are bad. Where do they waste their money learning? Because there's a lot of bad courses out there too that cost a lot too, too much money. Um, and so networking with others and asking what they recommend to do when you're starting can be a huge help. And so those are the two things coming to mind immediately that I would strongly recommend. And of course, don't invest in anything you do not understand. If you don't understand it, take more time to learn it, pass, because there's always going to be more opportunities, especially at this timing right now, but in general. Gotcha. So you actually started your own real estate networking group. Is that something you want to talk about? 
Sure, yeah. So um, I actually co-founded in 2007 with one other partner, a nonprofit organization called Foreign Investors by Investors, or FIBI. And the reason why we started those meetings is because between 2002 and 2007, I did a ton of networking. And I would probably go to between one and three events a week in person in LA. And it's funny because unfortunately, a lot of these events are sales pitches. Okay, that's why they exist. But there's a lot of people in the room at some of these. They may get one, 200 people show. And so there's a lot of really good networking opportunities around the room. And so what I would do is I'd actually come uh, to these events. I'd actually sit in the last row. I'd have my phone and sometimes even physical work with me. And I'd actually do two hours of work, not listen to the sales pitch. And when it was done, I would then network with other people because there was a great critical mass of people. What happened is that the first meeting I went to in 2007 and a half when I left the corporate world, I actually literally said to myself, oh, man, what am I going to do right now? I have to now sit through this meeting for two hours and listen to the sales pitch because I don't have any more work. I don't work. So um, what I decided to do is, you know, rather than waste my two hours at this meeting, I can actually start my own meeting where the core foundation is that there's no sales pitch. So our and we're very hardcore about that. So our philosophy is that we try to unite investors, learn from each other, exchange information, try to break even on the cost of the venue. We actually lose money through FIBI every year. That's been the way it's been since the beginning. But the networking and opportunities that have come from it have been invaluable. So it's by far worth it. And um, we've actually grown because people at the beginning didn't really believe about the no sales pitch. But when they started coming and saying we were for real and very hardcore about that, and we grew organically. And uh, for meetup.com, actually, which is a great resource. And we um, grew, grew to become the largest series of public non-institutional real estate meetings in California. Um, so we have, I have actually run a, a number of trees, but we have somewhere between 27 and over 30,000 registered users. Um, we've had up to about or so different meetings in Southern California. We only have about five or so, maybe six that are active at the moment. Some are dormant. Um, and um, I've been really lucky because, you know, I, I benefited from a ton of networking between 02 and 07. But once I started my own meetings and they happened to grow because I'm kind of the hub of that whole of those meetings my network really exploded and it's gotten much bigger since. So I've been very lucky as a result of that. That's great. And if people wanted to know, find out more about it, is there a website for it's, it's for investors by investors, correct? Yeah. You can go to for investors by investors.com or another way is you can go to meetup.com and then type in F I B I the acronym um, into the search box and it'll show you the closest meaning to you. We do have a couple of meetings out of state, but only a couple. The vast majority of our meetings are in Southern California. So we have most of them in Los Angeles. We currently have one active one in Orange County. We have a dormant one in San Diego. Um, the reason why we haven't expanded is because we will, will not take on a chapter. We haven't known literally for years, uh, both to make sure they're a proper real estate expert, also because we want to make sure they're not going to be pitching anything. And so we have given up the potential to grow probably very large in exchange for making sure that there's going to be a no sales pitch uh, type of um, environment. That's really, really key to Gotcha. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Uh, if any of our guests want to reach out to you, what's the best way they could uh, do that? Yeah, sure. I am happy to speak to anybody. Uh, you know, if you're trying to learn, you're new, or if you're experienced, you want to network, whatever, I'm happy to help any way that I can. Uh, best way to reach me is through email. Uh, my email is jroll, which is J-R-O-L-L, at Roll Investments, which is R-O-L-L, investments with an S, which is plural.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com is the best way to reach me. Oh, great. Well, thanks again, Jeremy. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels. Safe travels.